Welcome to the podcast of Calvary Baptist Church. We are delighted you have chosen to listen in today. It's our hope the message of Jesus will continue to spread and bear fruit, both in your life and the world around us. For more digital content, feel free to check us out on the web at calvarybcmoultrie.com. And now for today's message. As I was uh, preparing um, this text this week, um, it was interesting. One of the things I, I typically kind of think of, what's like something that explains this text in kind of everyday life? Um, the things that I live in everyday life. And um, one of the things that came to mind is uh, our love for substitutes. And here's what I mean. Like the first thing that came to my mind, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of that word. The thing that comes to my mind is I was in ninth grade Spanish class and it was Senora Pagan and I ultimately ended up failing her class, but I didn't like her much, but I remember she was out one day and one of the things that, uh, this, a substitute teacher came in and it was interesting, uh, our class, I was not a Christian at this point, our class convinced the substitute teacher that the thing that Senora Pagan did every day is she would start off every class with a reading exercise. So one of the students pulled out like a trashy romance novel and went to the most sensuous part of it. And the teacher just starts reading it all the way through, da-da-da, and he put her arms around her and said, da-da-da. And the class, the class is just cracking up. But substitute teachers, we all kind of grew up most likely with that, unless you were homeschooled, then you probably didn't. Unless you're the Myricks, actually, I was your substitute teacher this week for a day while Josh was down. But we have them everywhere. We have them in school. We have them commercially. Mountain, Lightning, Dr. Thunder, Amazon, Basic, substitutes for the real thing. We have them romantically. Some of you, maybe you've noticed this about yourself. You actually, you, you, you spend more time like, literally thinking about other boys that you could be dating or other girls that you could be dating. You just fly from one to the other. And even if you do break up with one, or maybe this described you in an earlier time, you you would just bounce right back. You would have bounce back relationships. What were you doing at that point? You were substituting. It happens in sports. Maybe you saw it last night in the thriller. Jorge Soler substitutes and pinch hits. In the air to left, back to the wall, gone. Our lives are actually filled in many ways with substitutes, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But, interestingly enough, this is actually one of the themes that the Bible actually picks up on over and over again. It is both good news and it is both bad news. And we're going to discuss both today. We'll actually discuss the bad news first. So one of the things that we see, and it's ironic as we're about to read this text, is that it casts a dark cloud over humanity. That one of the things that the Bible claims is that you and I constantly are substituting different things for what only Jesus Christ can actually do for us. That we as a human race have actually turned away from the God of the Bible. Not just in the things that we do. But in the things that are within deep within our hearts that we actually, if you think about it, can look at the God of the universe and somewhat almost yawn. 
that we, in many ways, are like wanderers in a desert, roaming from mirage to mirage, looking for anything that would quench our thirst. And when we think we find something, we shove it in our mouths, we swallow it, only to be disappointed again. Whenever we discover it as the sand that it really is. And then we often do not realize that the God of the universe stands as the living water that we actually need and truly deepestly want. Some of you might hear this and you might be like, David, that, that, I'm not a, I, I wouldn't call myself a Christian or, uh, but that sounds kind of far-fetched. Like, you're, like, I mean, come on. Or maybe you have friends like that. Either one of those. I'm glad you're here today because one, if that's you, I'm glad because we're going to get to see this. But two, if you have friends, this is a way that you actually get to answer their objections and show them the beauty of Christianity. So we're going to see a couple things about substitutions today. So if you are a note taker, if you are a note taker, all right, we're going to have three simple points today. It'll probably go pretty fast. Here's our first point. Our substitutions for Jesus Christ can be so sneaky that we don't even see them. Our substitutions for Jesus Christ can be so sneaky that we don't even see them. Point number two. Our substitutions for Jesus Christ result in self-destructive ways that others can tangibly feel. Our substitutions for Jesus Christ result in self-destructive ways that others can tangibly feel. And finally, our substitutions for Jesus Christ never deliver on their promises. So let's go ahead. Let's take a look. All right. Chapter 8, we're going to read verses 1 through 5 again. So here we go. It says, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn son was Joel. The name of the second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you are old and your, your, your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. Maybe you have not been with us so far as we've been going through this book, all right? One of my favorite books of the Bible, one of the things that we see about this book is it sets you up and it almost fools you in the way that you look at the characters. It presents to you a character in one light only to show them in a different light. So, for instance, the book starts with a woman that we've talked about a couple of times. She looks like she's intoxicated. She looks like an evil woman, yet she is righteous. And then it shows a bunch of priests who look on the exterior like they are great and wonderful. The only problem is they don't know the Lord. They don't walk with the Lord. They're sleeping with women when they come into their like religious gatherings. We see even at one point that God actually gets, quote, captured. He gets brought away. God's box that he dwells in, the Ark of the Covenant, the people take it out to battle. And what happens is they're thinking, oh, we're going to force God's hand. He's got to fight for us. The only problem is God says, ah, no, I don't. So what happens is he goes out. It looks like he is in real trouble. Who is going to save the God of the universe? He's been captured and we discover, oh, wait, he has no problem with that himself. So one of the things that we see, we saw last week that God made this major move now to bring the ark back to the people, but not just that, to actually bring them out of this present darkness that they're in. So we think that like, oh, there was this major turning point. Everything's going to change now. Everything's good. 
And then what chapter 8 does is it brings us, in some ways, crashing back down to earth. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the first one was Joel. The name of the second, Abijah. They were judges in Bathsheba. And then that terrible word, yet. His sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after selfish gain. So we think everything's going well. We think, oh my gosh, this is some new thing. And then what we get, it seems like, is more of the same. Samuel, this righteous leader, this guy who loves the Lord, he has been teaching for years and years and years and years. We see repentance throughout the nation of Israel. And all of a sudden, what happens? He appoints his son's judges, and all of a sudden, what are they doing? They're taking money under the table. They're perverting justice. What is going on? Why is the Bible telling us this? What is it telling you? If you read stuff like this, this is just a note. Let's say you're, you're constantly reading your Old Testament. Here's a tip. Whenever you see introductory information like this, it's going to show you what's going on after it. Does that make sense? So keep this in mind. His, his sons, they're crooked. Why do we need to know this? Because what is the very next thing that happens? Verse 4, then the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. You probably read that and you're like, David, what's going on? I, I, I don't understand. Let's just do some background real fast. In the Old Testament, God actually adopts a nation. They are very much unlike all the other nations. Why are they unlike all the other nations? Their government, in many ways, does not resemble any of the other nations. What do you do? What do they do in the ancient days? They did this. Whenever they set up a government, they put a king over everybody. All right? That way, the king would make decisions. Boom, boom, boom. The king would go out to battle. The king would do all these things. Israel was different. God didn't right away appoint a king. Now, he is not exactly against it, because we read back in, if you want to later this day, we read in Deuteronomy chapter 17, he actually talks about a day that he would actually do that. He would bring about a king. And in that way, he would kind of make them like all the other nations. So it's interesting, you read this and you're like, wait, what is going on here? Like, what's going on? Here's what's going on, and we can see this later in the section, that these people are looking at God, and what they are is they look at it and they're like, okay, I know he's brought us through all these particular things, but we feel kind of unsafe with him ruling over us. We would feel a lot more safe if there was actually, let's say, a king ruling over us. Then he could fight like all our battles. He would he would take care of all our issues. He would take care of all of our problems. It's interesting. The request isn't necessarily against what God has already said. But read in verse 6 and 7, what does it say? But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and 
The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. The issue here is not that they asked for something that was technically wrong. It was the motive behind that which they asked. Now, you might be like David. Like, that's silly. Like, that's, I mean, why would they do that? Of course, like, if I was in that situation, like, I I would trust the Lord. I would walk with the Lord. Hold up there for a second. One of the things that the Old Testament is meant to do, it's not to tell you how stupid people were in the past. It's to hold up a mirror to show that you and I are actually the same way. So what they do, instead of just saying, we don't trust God, we never say those kind of things. What they do is they look at something that is a real need. Hey, Samuel, you're, uh, your sons don't walk with the Lord. Oh, we've got an idea. Why don't we do this? That our disobedience at times can seem surprisingly reasonable. They would feel more secure with the king. That way they would be delivered. They won't have to worry about the nations around them. But at the end of the day, they do not trust God to be their deliverer. They want something that they can see, something that they can put a vote of confidence in. Something that they can gauge their safety and success by. They want a substitute. They want a substitute. It's interesting because as I thought of this text, I thought of the ways that I actually do the same thing. The ways that we do the same thing. I'll give a couple examples. Let's say that you are the kind of person, like, you're always into, like, the new thing. Like, you're into the new, like, new fashion, or let's say some of you ladies, you guys are, you're into, like, the newest cool foods, and like, oh, this is so good for your body, and this has got this hormone, and that cool vitamin, and this, and that, cool, awesome, I'm glad for you, so... I learned a lot of stuff through some of you guys. But you, you, you almost like catch on to these fads and you're really quick in doing so, right? Thinking like, this is the thing, man, that's going to change my body. This is the thing that's going to change my friend's body. This is the thing that's going to change us, right? Like we do this. You do this. You get excited about something. And you tell everybody about it. This is the thing that's going to change everything. But here's the thing. We can quickly do the same exact thing with Christianity. We, 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 we practice the form of it, but the content isn't there. I'll give you an example. So let's say you look for experiences with God through praise and worship. Awesome. That's great. You gauge your relationship, though, with him on the feelings that you get during music. What's the problem? You can feel great about your relationship with the Lord and it actually not be great, though. Like, let's just think about this. Judas, probably a month before he betrayed Jesus, probably felt really great about his relationship with Jesus Christ. That what we do is we have the form. Do Christians sing? Yes, we do. But it mistakes the form for the content behind it and in it. I'll give you another example. Maybe you are the first to volunteer 
for any like program the church has, like the nursery or like working with some of the stuff we did for the student for the student night the way here. Praise God, I'm thankful for you. Great. That's awesome. However, at the same time, maybe maybe it was different. Maybe you grew up in church choirs and those type of things. At the same time, maybe you are allergic to close relationships with other people, though, within the body. So you will you will do activities, but when it comes down to possibly getting involved in the lovely and loving in the messes of others, there's almost like a, ah, what's going on there? We we do these things, we look at them. The form looks right; it looks like what Christians do. The only problem is the content isn't there. I was thinking of this one. Maybe you are reformed in this room, all right? If you don't know what that is, that's totally okay, all right? This one, I am, I am one of these, all right? This one is especially tricky with us because we want to love the Bible. We want to love the Lord. But I'll give you an example for this one. Let's say you are a complementarian. I am one of those. If you don't know what that is, here's what it is. It means essentially that God created men and women with different roles. Like he didn't create us the same. So there's things that, for instance, women can do and, and function as that men cannot, and men can do and function as that women cannot. That we are equal in dignity and worth before God, but we have different roles. But here's the thing. Let's say you have a complementarian marriage. Well, great. Here's the thing, though. Think about it. You can have a really crappy marriage, though. Why? You've created the form. The form is there. The construction might be right. But the only problem is the content is gone. You're being like, David, what content? Well, let's say this. I'm stealing this one. I heard this one from a preacher recently dealing with this issue. Let's say you're married in this room. How do you deal with your spouse's selfishness? Here's the natural way we do it. We always see the other person's selfishness as more egregious than our own. We see the other person's sinfulness in our marriage, in your marriage, as more egregious than our own. This is why we get upset. Maybe whenever your spouse does that certain thing. But maybe when you do something similar, you know what? You've got reasons for it. But in some sense, what is the gospel? It is a, in some ways, looking at our own sin and saying, no matter what the issue is, I am going to always assume and act like my sin is more egregious than hers or his. That it is infinitely more dangerous to our marriage and our relationship than theirs is. Although, in some ways, they both are. But you refuse to look at the other person and feel like, mm, you know, they just changed and did this and this and this. No, you actually look at your own sinfulness, your own as more egregious. And you're like, no, I will not let myself slip into the mode to start blaming the other person that this is the reason our relationship the way is the way it is. You see, that's some of the content of the gospel right there. You can have the form, Mr. and Mrs. Complementarian, 
But if those, if that practice, if those practices and other practices aren't they, it doesn't matter what the form is. Why? Why do we do these things? We honestly, we, I think it's because of this, guys. We want to gauge on the outside that God is pleased with us. You and I desperately want to gauge. How are we doing? We want a report card. We want something that that we can simply just look at and be like, okay, I'm doing fine. While at the same time, the very thing that we're doing is we're keeping the form of maybe gospel things, but we are totally forfeiting its content and losing And what happens is the very thing that we're trying to please God with is actually not pleasing to him. That one of the things that we see here is the natural desire for substitutes. You, doesn't matter how old you are. Levi, Isaac, Callie, Hannah. Brandon, Lauren, we all substitute. We're substituting things for Jesus Christ, wanting to find identity, meeting, hope in things that actually are good things but could never do it. And this text, one of the things it's doing right away is it's showing how we do this all the time. That we essentially almost sometimes treat Christianity like we do our new diet. That if, if everybody just got on the same page, then everything, all the world would be right. And I guarantee that's not true. You see, these people in 1 Samuel, the substitutions that they made, They seemed perfectly reasonable to them. Just like, by the way, your substitutions, my substitutions right now seem perfectly reasonable to you. Maybe you are working, but you are overworking. You are actually trying to find meaning in your job. You want to make $120,000 a year so that you can have nice things. Let me ask you for a second. Why? What if your family and you could live off 60? And you could pour yourself out for brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Would you have a lot less nice things? You sure would. But I guarantee you this. In eternity, you will have something that nobody else has. But also this too. In this life, you will have something that nobody else has as well. You will be rich. It will be in a different currency than you expect. You will be rich in good works. And rich in love towards others. And that right, by the way, does not struggle with inflation. Next point. Two, our substitutions for Jesus Christ results in self-destructive ways that others can feel. Let's look at verse 6. We saw this earlier. So remember, they asked for a judge. Now Samuel is responding to them. But, verse 6, the thing displeased Samuel. Displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. 
And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from this day, from the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who is to reign over them. What are they doing here? Why does Samuel, first of all, why does Samuel get upset? They're like, hey, we want a king to judge over us. Well, let's just think about this for a second. Who's their current judge? Oh, that's right. It's Samuel. It's Samuel. He's literally been walking with these guys probably for like 60 years. He has been teaching them. When you hear the word judge, don't think like courtroom, wig. And actually, I don't think judges use wigs anymore. Courtroom, like bald or thinning, like gavel. Don't think that. Probably think more along the lines of, okay, they decide some cases. Major in terms of teaching at this time, probably what he's doing. So he's been going around to these different parts of Israel for like some 60 years. This guy is not lacking in relational capital. He has poured himself out for these people. He has given himself for these. He has taught them. Who else has he taught, though? He's probably taught their kids. He's probably taught their grandkids. And you can begin to understand why he feels the way he does. Because although they don't say it, what in some sense what they're saying is, We don't want you anymore. Now think about this. I think there's an aspect we can sympathize with the feeling here. Have you been rejected by people that you love? Have you been rejected by people that you would actually never expect to be rejected by? It grieved him. grieved him. They're not just asking for a substitute for God. They're asking for a substitute for him. Hmm. So how does he deal with this? I love the Lord's response to this guy. He is heartbroken. Like you can see it in the text. It's there. But notice what God said in verse 7. Catch this. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you. But they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds they've done from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day. See, if you read that, there's a way you probably shouldn't read that, right? Here's, like, you could read that, like, for instance, like, how, like, a girl would break up with you. You know, it's not you, it's me, like. No, and you're thinking, no, it is you, like. That's not what the Lord is doing. What is he doing to Samuel? 
he is inviting Samuel to a place where he can find a home for his sorrow. You might be like, David, how, how, how did you know that? Did you notice what the Lord said? He said, what they're not, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. According to, and he starts listing all the things that they had done to hurt him over the years. Here's what the text is getting at. That whoever this God is, he is a God who, you might have never heard of this word, is long-suffering. What does that mean? That means he has been through the ringer. That he is one who knows pain, not just from the outside, but from the inside as well. That although he is a God who has no relational deficit, he doesn't get lonely. At the same time, he is so selfless in his love and passionate in his love for humanity that he continues to open himself up to the agony of being betrayed over and over again. Not because he needs anything, but so that human beings might actually find their joy in a restored relationship with him. That he is a God who is long-suffering. So essentially what he says to Samuel is, you come mourn with me. You come mourn with me. And it's so interesting because one of the things that we see about this guy is this is the, not the last time he would suffer. Like this is a major thing we see throughout, even especially the prophets. What is this God called? He is called a, one day in Isaiah, a man of sorrows. That he knows pain not just from afar, but he actually entered your and my world and he has felt it. He is a God who shares our sorrows. But, lest you think, okay, David, that's kind of cool. All right, well, no, let's now see what's going to happen. Because we have been reconciled to him through Jesus Christ, something happens. You are not. You don't just have a God who, 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 who will share in your sorrows. Here's what happens. Did you notice what Philippians said earlier? Whenever we were reading up, when Jacob was reading, Paul talked about how because of the cross of Christ, what happens now is because you are united to Christ, you share in his sufferings as well. And you might be like, David, I'm smiling a lot less on that one than I was on the first one. Let's think about this for a second. In Jesus Christ, you and I begin to share in his sorrows. What does that look like? That looks like this. It means serving others and loving others in an uncharacteristic way for this world. That you would open yourself up to pain and agony to help other people, even if they hurt you over and over and over and over and over again. Why would someone do that? The only reason someone would do that is that they have been united with Jesus Christ who has done the same for you and I. 
And interestingly enough, what happens is, in the Christian life, this is what happens to you and I. And when this does happen, we begin to find a home for our suffering. In a way that actually does not sulk in suffering, but actually can rejoice in it. Let me ask you, friend, who maybe, who, who you, maybe you, you wouldn't claim to follow Jesus. Does that sound like something you want to actually be able to rejoice in the suffering? What kind of life would that be? To meet your pain and agony dead on. And to still be able to rejoice. That is unnatural. How could that ever happen? The only way that could ever happen is if you find a home for your suffering. And that is only in Jesus Christ. That we find a home for our suffering. And the other option is not a good option. The other option is that your pain will slowly poison you. You will become cynical and slowly more and more defensive. Your tongue will loose more and more. But Jesus Christ calls us to something better, that we have a God who is long-suffering. And not only that, he not only takes on our sufferings, but he invites us to take on his. The only cool thing is, though, let's think about this, there's a day... Where his sufferings, the sufferings that we actually share in now, will end. And he will make good on his promises. But until then, we walk giving ourselves away. Walking into relationships, giving ourselves away for the sake of others. Not insisting on our needs in the relationship being met. Why? Because we walk into relationships full because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We walk into our relationships full because of what he has done for us. The reason we can suffer with other people is because why? We have a long-suffering God who is speaking to Samuel right here. He compares his suffering... And says, hey, I know suffering. So he tells Samuel, what I want you to do though, I want you to tell these people, okay? I want you to tell these people who think that their request is perfectly reasonable. Sounds great. How could you lose? What I want you to do is I want you to show them what having their king will really look like. Because they've got this idea. He says, I want you to tell them what it's really going to be like. Now, here's the thing. Before we even read this, remember, whenever you're reading the Old Testament, what they didn't have is things like, let's think about you texting. They didn't have emojis. I don't know if that's the sound emojis make, but I just, we'll go with it. They don't have that. If you want to put sad face, or draw attention to something. You can do that on your phone via text. How do you do that at this time? One of the ways that the Hebrew writers did it is through repetition. 
When you're reading your Old Testament, pick up on repetition. Let me ask you, as you read this, be focusing. What is he repeating and what's the significance of it? Let's read. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of your king who will reign over you. He's like, you want to know what his ways are going to be like? You know what life is really going to be like? I'm going to tell you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow the ground and to reap his harvests and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and your olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you've chosen for yourself. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Let me ask you, what did you notice? Did you pick up on anything there? What's repeated over and over again? How does like each sentence start? He will take yours. 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 He's like, you can have a substitute king. Up to this point, the only king that you have is me, essentially what he's saying. And here's the thing. I have only ever given to you. You can have your king, but here's the thing. Do not expect him to be as gracious as I have been to you. It's a reminder, sometimes the things that the Lord does not give us is actually a good thing. And it's so interesting. One of the things he will take, he will take, he will take, he will take. And in verse 18, if you noticed it, all of a sudden there's a change. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Do you notice that? You, 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 you. What's going on here? Think of all their past history, if you're familiar with the Old Testament. They were enslaved where? In Egypt. Who heard them? Yahweh. They were enslaved by Moab and Joah and and, and judges. Who heard them? Yahweh. They were enslaved to the Edomites and judges. Who heard them? Yahweh. They were enslaved by the Philistines and judges. Who heard them? Yahweh. This time, though, their slavery will not come from the outside. It will come from the inside. And he says, this time, when you cry, I will not hear. If you really want to go this route, if you really want to substitute for me, I would not recommend it. 
It's a cold, hard truth that our gospel and God's substitutes never serve us like they think we're like we think they're going to serve us. In fact, at the end of the day, we end up serving them. It causes us to be angered with people, to hurt people, and to destroy ourselves along the way. To become self-righteous and to defend our substitute at all costs. Why? Because we get our justification. That's how we know we're doing right before God. That God, in the text, will give them their substitute. And you might say, David, that's a pretty bummer way to end this text, which you would, in some ways, be right. But let's just think, this is not the last time that that God would actually give a substitute. Later on, we would read, he would actually give another substitute, except this time it would be the king that we never wanted. The only problem was, he was the king that we needed. That Jesus Christ, the true and perfect king, would come. And this time, instead of us substituting the thing for God, he would actually substitute himself for you and I. That he would come and he would substitute himself for you. And I, and one of the remarkable things, he would actually give us the ability truly now to not substitute him with other things that we so painfully and often do. That we can look at our substitutions, no matter what they are, relationship, children, grandchildren, sports team, framework of reading like scripture, whatever it is, we can actually be like, you know what, that is good. Those things are good, but they are not, in essence, the gospel itself. And now we can actually live lives to thrive. Even thrive in the midst of hurt and agony. Not going to be easy. Why? Because God, at the end of the day, has given himself as our substitute. That he, in many ways, he gives them Saul. And we're going to see this in the next chapter, which we'll talk about next week. I'm curious. Anybody know what his name means? His name means this. It's a, it's a participle, which is an parts of speech for to ask. His name means the one you asked for. You're gonna give you want, you want a king? I'll give you exactly what you want. I'll give you just what you asked for. Praise God that He has not left us to ourselves. Praise God He has not left us to our own desires, but He has rescued us. What does this do? Maybe a quick application point or two here. This allows us to take on the hurts of others even when they hurt us. Some of you, you might have actually this impossible expectation of your friendships. Like if someone hurts you, you're done. Done. Nah. Girl, you said that. Let's think about this. Has Jesus Christ done you that way? 
He is not. He is not. That that is part of our call now to lay our lives down. And to open ourselves up to the pain and suffering of other people. Why? Because even when they hurt us, and you will get poo-pooed on. I have gotten poo-pooed on many times. I've gotten poo-pooed on by people I would never expect to get poo-pooed on. That is the Christian life. If Jesus Christ suffered because of the pain and agony that other people brought on themselves, you and I will do the same. We, you, will feel the suffering of other people. You will get poo-pooed on. Is that a theological term? Sure. But we rejoice in the midst of it. We rejoice in the midst of it. Not at that thing. Not at getting poo-pooed on. But what? At our God who will one day restore all things to himself. That this is why we push things like redemption groups. That there is a sign-up sheet outside. If you've not signed up, we encourage you to sign up on that. This is one of the avenues we are trying to walk together. This is our attempt at doing this right here. Maybe you can ask a spouse, a dear friend in the congregation, like, do you see substitutes in my life? Where does this, where, search your life for those things. They're there. What do you get defensive at? What is it if someone criticizes you cannot take it? What is it that you feel self-righteous over? That whenever you, people don't do this thing, instead of having a merciful heart, you get angry. Boom. These are all clues. But praise the Lord, we serve a long-suffering God who has invited us to find a home for our suffering in his own sufferings. That he has been our faithful substitute, the substitute to end all of our substitutes. May we walk with him in that. May we walk with him in that. Because that right there is good news. Let me pray. Thanks for listening in to today's message. For more information about our church, feel free to visit us at calvarybcmoultrie.com. We hope you will join us again next time. Until then, grace and peace.